0: Well, good morning. It's good to see you all again. Thank you so much for gathering here this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into uh, this sanctuary. Um, If we've never had the opportunity to meet, my name is Jamie. It is my joy and privilege to be one of the pastors uh, here at Crosspoint. And it's a joy to be able to open up God's word uh, with you all this morning as we... Get into week two of this series called On Earth As It Is In Heaven. Uh, If you're new to Crosspoint, this may seem like a new series. If you've been around Crosspoint for uh, the last few years, you know that uh, this is both a new series and an old series in that we return to it each January. We've been doing this for about five years now uh, because we believe that there are certain things that we as the church need to be paying attention to that as we just prayed a moment ago, we believe that the Lord instructs us, invites us, woos us to be part of his mission. And so as we start the new year together, I think it's so helpful to come back to those particular moments. So again, thanks for being uh, here. If you're gathered for Crosspoint at Home, thanks for bringing the church into your living room or dining room or wherever you happen to be tuning in from And so last week, uh, we spent time going through the Lord's Prayer. um, And so you can go back and listen to that online. But as we get into this second week, we're going to zero in on the line that you see on on the screen, on earth as it is in heaven. And I want to ask you to consider something this morning. That as we get into this, further into this series, and I'll spell out a bit of where we're going over the next couple of weeks. But I want to ask you, are you willing to pray these words? And so at one level, you might be like, well, uh, yeah, I prayed them just a moment ago. And that's awesome. And that is a good thing. But I'm, I'm really asking you to consider. And I believe what the Lord is asking, not just you, he's asking me to consider is, are we willing to actually pray these words with a posture of surrender to actually say, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven because every part of my being and of yours, we desire for our will to be done. We want our kingdom to advance. And even so much at times, even New Year's resolutions, those are not a bad thing. All right. Hope you're doing well. Um, and if you've already failed your New Year's resolutions, welcome to grace. All right. Like there's just God's grace for all of us. So praise God uh, for that. All right. But in this we have to consider for a moment, all right, that even resolutions and things can sometimes be about like our name and how I'm doing and how I feel about myself. And what if we simply surrendered to the Lord's will and we said, "Lord, I've got my own agenda and plans, but I'm, I'm going to hold that loosely." Um, and Lord, I'm asking you to move in such a way that is so clear that like your will would be done that the heavenly realm would invade this realm, all right? Because that's ultimately where this story is heading, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the call then is, would we be willing to pray this? Meaning, would we embody this? Would we be a group of people, not just as isolated individuals, but noting how the Lord's Prayer starts, our Father. There's this language of community, of unity, of a togetherness, of a family. We're saying, okay, we are united because of our heavenly father and the work of his son, Jesus. And so now there's this invitation and we're praying together, Lord, your will be done. And so what would that actually look like? Because here's the thing. If you and I would pray that prayer and pray those words, it will be costly, but friends, it is the place where joy is to be found. And that's something we are all desperately seeking. And the lie of the culture is you pursue you and you do you and you find your truth. And I don't believe that it ultimately can come through on the promises that it's making. Because at the end of the day, all right, problems, not just out there circumstances, the problems in my heart. And so if I follow me in my heart, I'm going to end up in a place of discouragement, of anxiety and of pain, but if I follow Jesus in his will, there still will be some pain and hardship, no doubt, but we will be with him and we'll see his will advance. And here I realize that in your sovereign grace and mercy and how you have ordained things to be, you are going to answer this prayer then through the work of your people. God does not need you. He's not concerned that you're going to thwart his will, that somehow like you made a resolution this year that is like, oh no, I don't know what to do. Like Jamie has this plan. Like he's not concerned in the least. But he is saying, I want you to play. Like, I want you to participate. There's this joyful work that we get to do in God's kingdom. And so how God has chosen to work is that he will work in and through us. And so will we open ourselves up to that? I came across these words of St. Teresa of Avila. She said this, Christ has no body on earth but yours, friends. No hands but yours. No feet but yours. That Jesus intentionally calls us the body of Christ, so that we would play our part, all right? That we would be the hands and feet of Jesus. We would see his will being done. And so, over the next uh, few weeks, just so you know where we're going, if you're a planner and you're like, okay, tell me, kind of give me the roadmap uh, for the remaining, starting today and through the end of January. This morning, we're going to be looking at Jesus in this idea, this call to justice. Next week, we're going to be looking at justice and racial reconciliation. These are the themes we've been returning to for several years now. We're going to look at justice and the sanctity of life on January 22nd. And then we'll look, we'll conclude this series on the 29th, looking at justice and missions, like all that's involved in that, both locally, around the world, church planting, all of those things. So that's kind of where we are heading. So I want to invite you to get a Bible out and turn to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah 42 is going to help us unpack what we see in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, particularly verse 10, where we pray, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So there are Bibles in the pews. Uh, I made a note last week, but in case you weren't here, there are new Bibles in the pews, ones with a font that doesn't take a magnifying glass to read, hopefully. All right, so you can grab one of those. If you don't have a Bible, you can take one of those home with you. No one's going to stop you at the door and be like, what are you doing with that Bible? Right, we'd be glad to give it away. All right, Um, so if you don't have one or you got one in some translation that's hard to make sense of, take that home with you. You can also go to thisiscpchurch. You can use the QR code on the pew there. It'll take you uh, to a little next steps part um, where it says sermon notes. And you can follow along with the text there, space to take notes, all of that that stuff. Um, Anything I put up on the slides this morning will be there. But hear the word of the Lord now. Isaiah, this ancient prophecy that's spoken hundreds of years before the, the start of the New Testament, we're going to look at the first four verses. If I had time, we'd go through the first nine. Uh, it's just this beautiful section, but we'll go four verses. New Year's resolution: shorter sermons. Who knows? But anyway, all right. So Isaiah forty-two. All right, <clears throat> beginning in verse. That's just the that's just the resolution my kids said for me to have. But anyway, all right. So uh, Isaiah chapter forty-two, beginning verse one. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. So friends, this morning what I wanna do is I wanna look initially at what we see in these four verses, just a theme that, that emerges and look at this pursuit of justice. And we're gonna take a, a bit and look at this one that's described here who is called to bring justice and the posture of that person. So there's a pursuit of justice, the posture and there's great provision that is made by the Lord so that we can participate. So that's sort of where we are going together this morning. So first, the pursuit of justice. We look back over these four verses. One of the things that's helpful to just pay attention to is when the scriptures use a word like behold, all right, that is God saying, I'm kind of grabbing you by the shoulders, wake up, pay attention, dial in, don't miss this, big E on the eye chart, like here's what you need to focus on. So the Lord in his kindness is doing this through his servant Isaiah. And he's having these words penned to record, not just for the people back then in their historical context, though that was true, but also for us several thousand years later, that it would speak that the word of God is living and active. It's no accident that you are here this morning or tuned in online or wherever you happen to be listening to this. Like God has a word for all of us. And so he says, behold. And the way that God then describes what's about to take place, all right? As he speaks of the servant, we'll look at that more closely in a moment, but he says, it's one that I uphold, it's my chosen, and my my soul delights. So God is very passionate about this person who's come on the scene, this servant. God has a particular call that there's this pursuit. And so as I read those four verses, and you look over there, not only is there the word behold, sort of pay attention, But there's also a word that shows up three different times in these four verses, all right? And it's that word, justice. We see it at the end of verse one. He will bring forth justice, not just to the nation of Israel, but to all the nations. It's why at the end, it says to the coastlands. It's like everywhere and from every tribe, tongue, and nation, the Lord is going to establish his justice. And then we see as well, um, at the end of verse three, he will faithfully bring forth justice. And then in verse four, till he has established justice in the earth. And so if you've been part of this series that we do each January, you know that we spend some time always talking about that word justice and not just the way that we think of it in our modern day context, because that, that can be a loaded term and it can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So it's helpful to go back and say, in what ways perhaps is this word been truncated a bit from its true meaning? How should we understand it? How did the biblical authors, how did Isaiah understand this word? And the word that he uses is mishpat, all right? Which is a fun word to say, so we should say it together on three, ready? One, two, three, mishpat, all right? So mishpat will be a key word for us in this particular series because it's a key word in all of the scriptures. In fact, in the Old Testament, this word mishpat shows up some 200, over 200 times in the Old Testament. So it's this theme. I mean, it's helpful to pay attention. When the Lord says behold, and when a word shows up, when Mishpat is spoken of three times in four verses, when the word Mishpat shows up over 200 plus times in the Old Testament, that should cause us to be like, oh, this apparently is very near and dear to the heart of God. And what does this mean? What what is brought under sort of this idea in this word mishpat. And so the reality is this, like we hear the word justice, all right? And there's an aspect of it that I think is helpful to think about this, that it's sort of like rectifying justice. And so let's talk about that for a moment, but it also includes something that's bigger, that's multifaceted, that is really this beautiful picture that's also this restorative justice. But first on the, the rectifying side would be this. Somebody breaks into your home, all right? They take your TV or they steal your laptop or whatever it happens to be, right? And then the cops actually find the person, all right? And so your goods that were stolen are returned to you. That person actually you know, has to, to go to court and stand before a, a judge that maybe they're gonna pay some fines, maybe they're gonna go to jail. I mean, all of that is sort of caught up in this idea of rectifying justice. And injustice has taken place And the situation is being rectified. And so we get that, we understand that, that makes sense to us. But when the writers of the Bible and when God himself speaks of mishpat and his heart for mishpat, his heart for justice, it's not less than this rectifying work, but it's far more. I mean, so under the umbrella of mishpat, yes, rectifying justice is certainly there, that idea. But friends, what it ultimately includes is this restorative pursuit. It means a right ordering of everything. It's God saying he's going to bring his mishpat, he's going to bring his justice to bear. In fact, the way we can ultimately understand this is that if we were people that lived with a sense of a right order of everything, so we loved God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we loved our neighbor as ourselves, because Jesus boiled the whole law down to those things, right? Like if we were able to do those things perfectly, that would represent a right ordering of things. And then all of the aspects of rectifying justice would cease to exist because nobody would be sinning against one another. Nobody would be doing stupid things. Nobody would ever have to apologize. None of that would actually exist. All right. Because there'd be this ultimate right ordering. And so when God speaks of bringing this, it's closely associated with another Hebrew word, which is shalom. It's this universal flourishing, wholeness, delight, as Cornelius Plantinga speaks of it. Like this idea that everything is God originally intended it to be. And so when we talk in this series, we're not just talking, we're not limiting it to rectifying justice. Sure, there are those things that do happen, but the vision for Mishpat is restorative. And so with that, let me read to you a couple places where this idea shows up. One of the one a beautiful places, Psalm 146, 7 to 9, speaking of the Lord, it says he executes what? Mishpat. There's our word. He executes Mishpat, justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. He lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves those who live a mishpat life, those that live justly. The Lord watches over the immigrant, sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. He frustrates the ways of those who do not live according to his right ordering, according to his mishpat. Now, if you take those ideas, one of the best places to look in terms of like a practical outworking of this, it's in the book of the Bible that you probably have memorized. It's the book of Leviticus. I know it's all your favorite. It's the one in your Bible reading plan that you're just like, can't wait to get to Leviticus. No Bible reading plan ever dies there, but just in case you don't have it memorized, right? Let me read to you this particular chapter, just a couple of verses out of Leviticus 19, because it paints a picture of what a mishpot sort of culture, all right, and society begins to look like. So these words that I'll read, they don't include the word mishpat, but the whole chapter is about this idea. So God is speaking to a highly agrarian culture where their livelihood depended on the crops that they would grow, all right? And so notice these words. Notice this very particular specific advice, all right? He's like, hey, farmers, pay attention. And in that time and place, most everybody would have paid attention because they're like, we all are that to some degree, so he says this, Leviticus 19, these words are recorded. These are God's words about Mishpah. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Do you hear what... God is communicating. He's saying, listen, by my grace and my sustaining power and power of my word, like you're going to put a seed into the ground and the rains are going to come and I'm going to water that and new life is going to burst forth like right out of the dirt and crops are going to grow and you're going to be able to harvest those and you will feed your family and the town will gather and they will celebrate the harvest. But there are some Who somewhere along the way, like they lost their land, which means they really lost any chance to have like an economically kind of viable life and existence. Like they, they kind of find themselves in this spot where they're just like, I don't know what to do. I'm destitute. I have no means of providing. And so what God is saying is, listen, when you go out, all right, and you're bringing in the harvest, he says, reap the harvest of your land. You shall not reap your field right up to its edge. He's like, just leave some along the edge. And when you're bringing it in, if things happen to fall behind you, don't circle back. Don't send somebody, don't send the kids and say, go pick up everything that, that we dropped. Just leave that because there are some that don't have their own land. There are some that don't have a way to make a living and they will come and they will harvest what is along the edges and they won't have the abundance that you have, but they will be provided for and he says the same thing in regards to grapes. And so we look at this. Again, we might think, oh, well, this doesn't apply to me. Unless you're that committed to your wine, you're just like, yeah, I got my own vineyard. Amazing. We can talk afterwards, right? But um, in this, he's saying, he says these words, right? You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes. Same thing, like leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You see God's heart for right ordering. You see God's heart for the oftentimes overlooked and the marginalized and the poor. And so you and I think in our present-day context, we are not to read this and say, well, unless I'm you know, farming land or whatever, then this doesn't apply to me. A way to think about this would be, how do you view the resources that, that you have? Do you see yourself as an owner, or do you see yourself as a steward of what the Lord has given to you? Are you seeking every possible way to maximize profit just for you? Or are you willing to, to live on less so that you could live a sacrificially generous life so that other people might actually be taken care of? And so that you see the Lord's heart over and over. Now, when we talk about this, I want to read to you a quote from one of my college professors named Hassel Bullock. And he he kind of taps into something, I think, that is that perhaps you're even feeling right now. That when we talk about mishpat, and particularly in modern day, when we talk about this word justice, there can be this fear, all right? And I think there's some, some aspect of it that is um, that we should be uh, hesitant at to a certain degree because over the decades, there have been times when the church has gotten so caught up and sometimes what gets dubbed like a social gospel that they fail to communicate things like, Sin and the atoning work of Christ and our need for Jesus and that there's a real heaven and there's a real hell and like all of these things. And it can almost just sound like, Hey, all we're to do is just go love our neighbor. And we lose the fact though that primarily we're called to love God. And how are we going to love God if we're not in relationship with God? Well, how do we get in relationship with God? We need the atoning work of his son, Jesus. And so there can be this fear when we talk about these things. Are we promoting a social gospel? No. If that's what you mean by it, that we'd abandon all those things. No way. But any time the gospel takes root in our hearts, it results, as the book of James would say, in these works that are being done, not to earn anything. Like, you go in and serve the the poor and the homeless. God is not like, wow, I I actually really do love you now. No, like, that is not how we earn. We don't earn the affection of God. But one of the ways we know that God is doing a work is suddenly our eyes begin to be more open and compassionate. And we see, okay, Lord, how can I live as a steward and not as an owner? that it should result, there are social implications to the gospel. So hear this quote from Hasselbeck. He said this, We should not be as much afraid of becoming dominated by, quote, the social gospel as we should be of neglecting the social aspects of the gospel. There is no way that we can preach an authentic gospel of grace and at the same time ignore the social responsibility of the church to show that grace in human relationships. And so, friends, I just want to call us to be considering these matters. There's nothing easy about these things. Even the topics we're getting into today, in the coming weeks, I'll be honest. There's aspects that it creates some fear and anxiety in me. Not, I mean, certainly at one level, because I'm like, I'm not an expert in these things, and who am I to speak to these things? But I also think there's a bit of a fear and trepidation because I know to actually embrace these things, to surrender to Lord, Your will be done. Like it would be costly. There's a massive comfort idol that I have in my life that I'm like, I don't actually, I don't know if I want to sacrifice. I don't know if I want to be disrupted. And my guess is you battle that too. Part of the, the, the great danger of the context in which we live, we live in a very dangerous place. What I mean by that is so much of kind of just the general suburban life, and I'm not knocking that, all right? But I think we have to be aware that it can just lull us into sort of this, yeah, it's about me, it's about my little kingdom, and all of that. And the Lord is inviting us into something more. And so we need to ask this question, like, how will this justice, this mishpat, be achieved? And so here's what's so beautiful. Look with me at verses 2 to 3. We see this one who comes on the scene, and there's a particular bent. Like, there's a disposition, there's a posture that is demonstrated and is described in these verses. So look with me. Again, Isaiah 42 verses 2 to 3, it says this, He, this one who comes on the scene, this servant will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And so if we ask this question again, how will this justice be achieved? If we're like, yeah, the tendency, I think, if we can be honest, is to think, okay, what is needed is a great plan and a great strategy, and we need a lot of resources, a lot of financial backing, all right? We probably need a lot of influence, and so let's, you know, uh, let's seek how many, like, you know, social media followers we can have. Let's leverage all all of those things, and there's nothing wrong with doing that, but that's not what we see here. Like, I would expect in reading this that God would say, I'm going to send a king to come and accomplish this, but he doesn't send a king. He sends a servant. I mean, think about that for a moment. Somebody who himself, lowly, marginalized, overlooked, no power, no wealth, not a, not a cultural influencer at any level, right? He says, I'm going to send a servant. So everything is upside down in God's kingdom. It says this servant shows up. It says not crying aloud or lifting up his voice or making it heard in the street. And apparently, this servant comes to those that are described as a bruised reed or like the wick of a candle that's about to go out. But they don't snuff it out. But they fan it into flame. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And so I was thinking about that, um, and I am not a Hebrew scholar, and I've got no business, you know, trying to translate the Bible. But I thought, well, how would I put this into my own words? And so, um, you know, the New International Jamie Hart version of the Bible, which is a terrible translation, um, but I wanted to at least try and, like, how, how could we think about these things? What might this look like? If Isaiah was writing it today, like, what would be some of the things that he would call out? And I wonder if this gets at some of the heart of it, that he describes this servant this way, maybe this. He will not announce to the world what he is doing by virtue signaling on social media. He will not grandstand. He will simply and faithfully pursue love of neighbor. That there's this tendency, like we're just drawn to to the big and the grandiose, right? And if you don't believe me, like I think we should just pay attention to like the political moment we live in. And I'm not talking about one side over the other. I'm saying like everything feels like a lot of times it's like this person will do it, this person, whether, whether regardless of what side you're on. And there can be a lot of grandstanding and there's a lot of posturing. But that's not what we see here in Isaiah. When God wants to bring a right ordering, he doesn't sing, send in like the big and the impressive and everybody ooing and aahing and look at their, their financial resources and look at their backing and look at their following. He sends a servant. And so how is it with us? Like when you and I think about having an impact, do you buy into the lie that maybe you don't think about yourself as like this you know, nationally known figure? But don't we all tend to want to focus on us? How will we be perceived? Do we have what it takes? Are we impressive enough, right? If you don't believe me, next time you're in a group photo and you go to look at it, like, I'm guessing you don't look at how everybody else looks before you look at yourself, right? We're all like, how did I look in the photo? And it reveals the wickedness of our heart. Welcome to church, right? Like, that's the reality, like we all do these things. I heard a pastor this week, I was listening to this podcast. I mean, he was talking about what a culture they're trying to create in, in their church. And it's not perfect, but he was just like, he, he was talking about this, this question of like, how do you walk into a room? And so at a basic level, you're like, well, I opened the door and I set one foot in front of the other. But yeah, but not that so much. It's like, what's your posture? How do you carry yourself? Do you walk in consumed with self, worried about what everybody else will think of you? Maybe, that, maybe in insecurity, you think nobody will care. Or maybe in pride, you think everybody should care. Either way, the focus is on self. So how do you walk into a room? Do you walk into a room? Like, what if we were a church culture that we walked into, whether it be a room, a gathering, we saw people, we see fellow image bearers, people that are connected to the church, people that are outside of the church. Instead of walking in with a posture of like, look at me, everybody, we had this posture of like, oh my goodness, look at you, fellow image bearer. Like, look at you. How was your week? What's going on? That thing you asked your prayer for, how is that going? Like to remember conversations, to check in, to send that, that text, right? Maybe a way to think about it is this, is like, look at you is far greater than look at me. Joy is found in look at you. How are you doing, right? We are robbed of joy when our posture, and we believe the lies, We gotta look at me walking into a room thinking that I'm a big deal and getting frustrated because everybody else is trying to be a big deal. And you're like, you're taking up my space in the room. No, we are called to see one another. That's what a servant does. And so when we ask this question then, as it's laid out, God sends a servant. Who is the servant? And my guess is you're picking up on this by now, right? Like if you've ever been in a Sunday school class ever in your life, you know the answer to who is this servant, who is it? It's Jesus, right? That's the answer. Jesus is the answer. Most times, Jesus is the answer, all right? And so every time, Jesus is the answer. Like, who is this servant? It's speaking of him. Now, we're hundreds of years before Jesus coming on the scene. But friends, isn't this a beautiful description of him? Yes, he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He will return triumphant. But what did we just celebrate in this Christmas season, this Advent season? Did Jesus come in? announcing to the cultural elites, I am here? Or was word given to the shepherds who were overlooked and marginalized and regarded as pretty much the nothing, the riffraff of culture? Was he born in an amazing palace? No, he's in a stable. He's around animals. He's got a mom with a, a reputation as the supposed like teenage virgin mom. Sure, likely story, right? Like I mean, all of these things. He's got a dad, earthly dad that almost left, that came back. I mean, like, there's nothing about the Jesus incarnation story that speaks to anything other than just his nature to be a servant. The one who would grow up and he'd wash the feet of the disciples. Even Judas, who would betray him. Even Peter, who would deny him not once, but three times, was washing their feet. When the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest, who's the big deal in the room, he's like, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You want in on that? That's how the kingdom advances. So, who is the servant? It is Jesus. I love the way Matthew, to just help us identify this, all right? Matthew 12 says this Jesus, he's aware of what's happening in the crowds. He withdrew from there, but people, people keep following. So, he healed them all. You see his compassion. But he's not doing it for photo ops. He's not doing it to build his brand, his identity, right? To be more influential, right? He says he ordered them. He didn't suggest he ordered them not to make him known. I'm not going to play into the nonsense of the hype. It's like, we're called to be servants. This was to fill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And then notice what Matthew does. On the inspiration of the Spirit, he begins quoting a passage that should feel a little bit familiar now because he's quoting Isaiah forty-two. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel, cry aloud, and will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not quench, till he brings justice, till he brings Mishpat to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. And so, friends, as we think about this for a moment, when Jesus shows up. He's not announcing it. He's like, here I am, I'm a big deal. And his disposition, like when we read this, where do you find yourself in the text? If you're like, I'm the hero. You're reading it all wrong. (laughs) There's one hero and it's Jesus. Like we should read this and realize, oh, I'm that broken and bruised and bent reed. I'm that fire, that smoldering wick. Like it's about to go out. I, I can't do it on my own. I can't bring a right ordering to my life. Seemingly like everything that I touch, it actually seems to get worse than than better. Like that's like left of our own devices. Like that's what happens. And I want you to hear this. If we're going to be Mishpat kind of people called to live this out, we have to remember what God has done for us. How Jesus showed up, not to just people a couple thousand years ago, but how he continues to show up to you and to me. Like you brought things in here this morning. I've brought things in here this morning, and, I, like it, and it feels like I'm sure you feel things very acutely of like this bent, bruised reed. I feel like life is just kind of beat you up, like the smoldering wick. It's like the, the flame, it's like ready to be extinguished. It's like ready to go out. And Jesus comes to you. Like, hear this. It's not just for other people. Like, He sees you, He walks in the room. It's like, it's you. You're my son and my daughter. Tell me what's going on, except he already knows. But he still he's like invites you to tell him, like share with me what's on your heart, what's on your mind. He shows up. I mean, look at how Matthew describes uh, him, how Jesus describes himself, really, in the book of Matthew. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Come to me, you bent and bruised reeds. Right, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For what? I am gentle and lowly. I will be compassionate towards you. I'm not going to lash out at you. I'm going to be gentle with you. And listen, and lowly, like I'm going to enter in and you'll find rest for your souls there. Not in making yourself a big deal, not even in trying to like serve other people, but doing it for your name's like, no, no, come to me. I'm gentle and lowly for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so friends, this is the posture that we see. So what I want to do, this last little bit then, is look at verse 4 and say, if if there's this posture that's been described in verses 2 to 3, and we see how God has come to to us, verse 4 is going to even help drive that home at a deeper level, so that we can be the kind of people who participate in Mishpat. Not because we have to earn the affection of God, no, but because he's saying, hey, this is the place where joy is found. Like, we get to be part of God's, Kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. And so there's this provision for justice. Let me read verse 4 again. He, the servant, will not grow faint or be discouraged. So he's describing like himself. Right? He won't grow faint or be discouraged till what? Till he has established justice, till he has established mishpat, a right ordering in the earth and the coastlands, meaning for all people, wait for his law. Now, I'll say the word mishpat, I'll have you say the word mishpat. At no level does that mean I really am a Hebrew scholar. I don't really know it. I took some seminary classes in it, and I was like, cool, I'm done with that. I probably don't know any of it anymore, it feels like, right? But like, There are people that are Hebrew scholars. And so even when I read something and what I'm about to point out, if you're like, oh, I would have totally missed that. Yeah, I totally missed it too. So if there's any part that you're like, when I read the Bible, I don't get these things. There are scholars of these things. I'm not one of those. I get the joy of sometimes just saying, oh, I got to study this and like bring this. And there's a particular scholar named Alec Motier in his work on the book of Isaiah. He says this. And he wants to connect some dots for us about like what's being written. There's particular words that are being used in verse three and then variations of them are shown in verse four. And there's this connection that's meant to be made. Like the original hearers would have been like, oh my goodness, are you telling me this? Are you telling me that this servant, like what he's going to experience? So listen to this. He, he looks back, all right, um, in ver- verse three. So pay attention to the words there, like bruised, maybe Depending on your translation, it might say something different. A faintly burning wick, all right? So that sometimes can be used like the wick would falter. Discouragement can also be a word that's used for like bruised or bent, bruised, that sort of thing. So he says this, falter and discouraged match the corresponding words in verse 3. So look at, the. you see verse 4, we're talking about faint or being discouraged and all of that. He says, so falter, discouraged, they match the words in verse 3. And he says this, the servant, and what it's trying to communicate is the servant comes right into the human situation. The things that crush and quench, he will experience, but he will triumph and succeed in establishing justice, the revelation of God on earth. Like this is written in such a way that's meant to showcase for us. You may feel bruised and crushed, ready to be snuffed out, just like this flickering flame that's like ready to be extinguished. And what is being written in verse 4 is saying that the one who shows up, not only will he observe that in you, but he will experience it himself. This is the beauty of what this passage is communicating, because it's speaking of this servant that is Jesus. The one who we'll look at a passage in a moment is this suffering servant. And so, if we go back for a moment, we think about mishpat. There's rectifying justice, and there's this restorative justice. What verse four is telling us is this: that rectifying justice has to take place. Somebody has to pay. In the same way that justice has to happen for the person who broke in and committed a crime or committed robbery or theft, right? all of these things, rectifying justice has to take place. But verse four is saying, when this servant shows up, in some long awaited time, they don't know when it's gonna happen, but we know, we know he has shown up. The servant, Jesus showed up and came on the scene and brought about rectifying justice, not by putting it on you, but by it being put on him. Rectifying justice took place on the cross. It had to take place. God had to punish sin and wickedness, but rather than bringing rectifying justice and pouring it out on you and me as we deserve, the rectifying justice, the wrath of God, the punishment that we all deserve was instead put on Jesus as he hung on that Roman cross. Rectifying justice taking place so that what? So that the ultimate restorative justice, the right ordering of everything this restorative justice would take place. And friends, that's what we have been granted. That's what we've been brought into. And now we get to participate because of what Jesus has done. This servant has shown up. He's moved into the neighborhood. He's lived a sinless life. And yet, in the wonder of God, he would say, not my will, but yours be done. I will see to it that the rectifying justice of the Father is accomplished so that we might experience this restorative justice, this restorative mishpat. It's why just a few chapters later, in another servant song, Isaiah has several of these. One of them is Isaiah 42, another well-known one, Isaiah 53. Look at the language here. But he was pierced for our transgressions. His hands, his feet pierced with nails. His side pierced with a spear. Not for his transgressions. For our, for your transgressions, for my transgressions. He was crushed. He was bruised, not for his iniquities. He didn't have any, but for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This is what heals us. And what's going to bring healing to this world as we await Jesus coming back next time, not as the servant, but as the King of kings and Lord of lords, right? As we await that day, what's going to bring healing? As a group of people, as Henry Nowen talked about, we are wounded healers. Like we go out into the world and know our brokenness. We know the ways that we've been bandaged up by Jesus, and we are being healed by him. And now we want to seek to bring that healing, that mishpat, wherever we go. And friends, it's not likely going to look like something that's overly impressive. All right, It's going to look like you and I this week being Willing to be disrupted, to not have our plans go the way that we want them to, to enter in, to show compassion, to check in on that person, right? Maybe you'll get an opportunity to do a glorious thing. Maybe you'll be on the news this week and you'll be trending on Twitter and it's going to be awesome, right? But probably not. It probably will be unseen except by the Lord Himself. And there's not going to be this grandiosity and this grandstanding, it's going to be simple ways that we seek to love as God has loved us, who's rescued us, who is in the process of healing us. And so we'll close with this. I want us to keep this image in mind as we think about our participation then. I think one of the most helpful images, one that has spoken to me uh, over the years, is from a book called Generous Justice. And in this particular book, Tim Keller writes, he, he says, think about culture, society at large, it's like this, this woven tapestry, right? Like this, this beautiful... It's, Anyways, this this work of art, except there are places where things have been pulled and stretched and frayed and gaps and holes are being created in this beautiful tapestry. Things that were perfectly woven together because of sin have been torn apart. Now there's these gaping holes and it doesn't look like what it was originally intended to look like. And he says the calling of the church then is to be willing. Listen, you're not the weaver. That's God. All right? But our calling is to say, okay, I'm this particular spool of thread. Would you be willing to be woven in by the ultimate weaver that is God himself? And to be woven in means that you have to get near. You have to make contact. You need to touch. Like You can't do this from a distance. You've got to be known and know other people. And we press in this new year as well, like hearing us talk about like get connected into group. It's not just so your life is busy. It's because the church needs you and you need the church and our community needs us woven together so that we can be part of this reweaving of what has been torn apart. And so a question for us to think through is like, will you be woven in? And us being spools of thread that just kind of sit on the shelf or maybe even are like overlaid near each other. No, we need to be actually woven in. So hear these words from generous justice as we think about our participation in closing. To do justice means to go to places where the fabric of shalom has broken down, where the weaker members of societies are falling through through the fabric and to repair it. This happens when we concentrate on and meet the needs of the poor. How can we do that? The only way to reweave and strengthen the fabric is by weaving yourself into it. Human beings are like those threads thrown together on a table. If we keep our money, time, power to ourselves, for ourselves, instead of sending them out into our neighbor's lives, then we may be literally on top of one another, but we are not interwoven socially, relationally, financially, and emotionally. Reweaving shalom means to sacrificially thread and lace and press your time and your goods and your power and resources into the lives and needs of others. May we be a church that is used by God to reweave what has been torn apart. And in those times when you worry, like, can I be used? Here, notice this. Remind yourself of this. Jesus wove himself into your story into our story, into the story of the brokenness of this world so that ultimately everything could be rewoven. And he's asking us in the limited time that we have been given, would we be willing to live as stewards and not as owners and to pursue mishpah? And so church, let me pray for us. I'd ask you to be asking the spirit to lead you where you need to repent, to remember God's grace towards you and to be part of this reweaving, being willing to be woven in to the culture. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your kindness and your mercy, your grace and that suffering servant. Would you use us? Would you weave us into the places that have been torn apart? And God, would you make this beautiful tapestry in only the way that you can? And So God, would you do it for your glory and for our joy? We pray pray in Christ's name. Amen.